back to WeChat Divorce. Hello, I'm Karen Shalou, and I'm here with Katherine Shanahan. Hello. And we have a special guest today here, Carissa Liller, attorney with Curtin and Hefner. She's the chair of the family law section there. Welcome, Carissa. Thank you, Karen and Katherine, for having Hi, me. Carissa. We thought it would be really good to have an attorney on board to talk about a couple different topics today, one being spousal, child support, APL, all of those wonderful terms that we all hear about um, when talking about the divorce process. But Carissa, let's start out a little bit with uh, your background. Talk to us about who you are as a person, as an attorney here in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Thanks, Karen. I have been practicing in Bucks County for 20 years now. I started off my career as a prosecutor in Bucks County. Um, I then moved to Berks County for two years, so I did that for about four years, and then moved back to Bucks County because I love it here. So I currently live in Doylestown. I mainly focus my practice areas in family law, uh, which I've been doing for over 15 years now, and I have done criminal defense. My main focus right now is on family law, though. I am a single mom. I've got a six and a half year old. She's in first grade. And like I said, I live in Doylestown and I love living there. Awesome. And she's not in school today, being President's Day. That's correct. Oh, All the yeah. kids Forget those home. days. I'm yeah. an empty nester. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big deal. Yeah, so she's at her old child care place with some of her old friends that she doesn't get to see anymore because they go to different schools. So. Oh, fun. Yeah. yeah. Cool. All right. Well, we want to talk about support guidelines and how, I guess, a lot of different factors affect the bottom line. So an overview, Can I guess we should just start out with an overview of support as it relates to filing for divorce. So... APL, child support, spousal support, how does all of that generally work? So you can have, so if you, you do not have to be married to file for child support. Obviously people have children and they're not married. So child support you can file for as long as the parents are living in separate households. If they're living in the same household, normally the court says that, that they're not addressing it. There is a, a rare circumstance in which the court will address if people are living in the same home. It's if there is a financial separation within the home. So if there's a the other parent, for example, is the independent spouse, so they're the mm-hmm. spouse working, and they're not giving money to the household anymore, so they're withholding all the money. It, it rarely happens that way, but that's a rare circumstance in which the court would say that there's a financial separation. Why Typically, is that rare? Because we hear about it a lot. Well, it's interesting it's, because a lot of people now have maintained their own separate accounts. Right. So what happens is, so if somebody is, is truly a dependent spouse, they don't work, they're a stay-at-home mom, for example, mm-hmm. and I don't mean to be sexist by just saying mom, stay-at-home, <laughs> yeah. but if somebody's a stay-at-home parent mm-hmm. and they're raising the child or the children and the other parent um, is withholding money, typically they're still paying for the mortgage or the rent. Um, they might be paying for groceries. So, so the court will sometimes say there's not really a financial separation. So a financial separation can a- occur within the home if somebody truly is withholding all money, that bills aren't getting paid, if utilities are getting turned off, that sort of circumstance. So that is a rare circumstance. So while somebody might perceive it as, 
they're not giving me any money to, to buy gas for the car or things like Food, that. How about groceries? Right. Yeah. So if it's groceries, so that, that becomes a situation where Medical you might, bills. right. Or if they're not paying for um, certain expenses for the child or, or if they've cut off the medical insurance, which is really difficult to do, mm-hmm. especially if you're married, then a court will get involved. But typically you have to be, it, the rule is that you have to be in separate households. There has to be a physical separation okay. before you can file for child support. You can also file, so if you're married, you can also file for spouse support, even though a divorce complaint has not been filed yet, as long as you're in physically separate residences. The alimony pendite lite, APL, can only be requested when a divorce complaint is filed. So that, because that's alimony pending the litigation. So that can only be requested when a divorce complaint is filed. The spouse support can be requested even if a divorce complaint hasn't been filed, but you have to be married, obviously. Okay. So what's the difference between APL and spousal support then? Just filing for divorce? Yes, essentially. And the, the other distinction, which is important, um, with APL, there is no what we call an entitlement defense. So with spousal support, you can the the payor spouse can claim a defense and say, well, my spouse who's asking for support was cheating on me. And that's the reason why the marriage ended. And that will prevent one from getting spousal support. So just somebody's assertion of it isn't enough. You have, if the person isn't admitting it, if there's no proof of it, because a lot of times people say, well, I think my spouse was cheating on me. Well, do you have any proof of it? Do you have text messages? Do you have letters? Do you have you know, any other proof of it or an admission? And if you do, then that that will fulfill the entitlement defense proof. But if you don't have proof of it, then normally the court will will not want to get involved in it. But the remedy then is is to file a divorce complaint so you can instead file for APL. And then there's not an entitlement defense to that. Oh, wow. That's interesting. So what if you had, like, what if a spouse was cheating and they reconciled? Then it it doesn't count. So if there's been a reconciliation, and that's also... So infidelity can be grounds for divorce. And again, in Pennsylvania, we normally don't, people normally don't seek grounds for divorce because we have a no-fault divorce and you can just move forward without asserting any grounds. But if you have reconciled, then the court says it doesn't count anymore. You, you've forgiven that person, you've reconciled, and you're back together so that they will not look at that typically. What if you reconciled and then admitted to having a previous affair? That still would be grounds, <laughs> correct? <laughs> I think if you, I, I mean, and again, Karen always loves my answers when I say it, it depends. depends. It depends. <laughs> but I think that if, if you reconcile and the reconciliation is, is premised on the fact that the spouse was saying, I never cheated on you. I didn't do this. And then the spouse later admits, and then the marriage fails because of that admission. I think that a court might consider that, but I I don't think that 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 would be a really black and white situation. So then again, the remedy would be they file for divorce, you file for APL, and then you just move along and the spouse would be entitled then on either side. Right. right, depending on the income situations. Yes. yes. I mean, if the formula works out that the spouse is entitled to APL, then yes, they would get it. Okay. Um, another situation that we've have seen with couples coming in, um, and we find it quite astounding, is they have a child support order, um, and medical and extracurricular activities were not addressed at the conference. Is that 
No, that, that's not, that does not sound correct to me. Medical is always addressed. It's in the, with the county medical incorrectly. Maybe I'm thinking extracurricular. Okay. Uh, yeah. Extracurricular activities are not addressed in support orders, but the medical expenses are the, the couch with the medical expenses, the um, psychiatric and psychological expenses are not included with medical. So you have to make sure as a practitioner that you are including that language. So if you know that the children are getting that kind of treatment, that you include a provision in the order that says that psychiatric and psychological treatment will be included with the unreimbursed medical expense costs. Wow. Because that is not always included. That's a very good point. Mm -hmm. We just had that situation last week where it wasn't included. We brought it up and another group of attorneys and they said it's always included so we were confused so it's included yeah. if the practitioner addresses if the, the attorney topic. addresses it or if somebody is representing themselves they go in you need to understand that the unreimbursed medical expenses for for a spouse or for mm-hmm. the children so if there's a spousal support or an APL order that it covers the the spouses the the dependent spouses expenses as well but it needs to be specifically in the order that says that psychiatric and psychological will be included. Okay. So what about extracurricular activities? That's that's typically on the, the primary custodian. It's on them to pay it. So the court's position usually has been, we're not getting into this. When I first started practicing, it was, a, it was an issue that was addressed. But the court finally had said, we're not micromanaging things, so we're, we're not getting into this. So typically what I advise my clients is if the children have already been involved in something, because some of these activities get really expensive, yeah, like cheer, incredible. hockey, these travel teams. travel teams. So what I try to do is say, let's negotiate because normally the parents, if it's something the kids have been involved in, the parents typically want the children to remain involved in them because that it's, it's a good thing for the kids, especially if they're into it and they're doing well. So typically the parents, you can put a provision in the order. Again, you can add whatever provisions you want as long as everybody's in agreement. So typically I'll add provisions that say that the parents will equally share the cost of cheer. So even though the percentage split might be 60-40, for example, Mm -hmm. or 70-30, I tell people to make sure we get the other parent contributing. Let's just agree to be it to be it at 50-50 because they don't have to contribute anything. So it's better to get 50% to make it seem like you're being fair and reasonable than to get nothing additional for these costs mm-hmm. because then it's coming out of your support monthly. Or right. then the kids just can't do it because it's, it's too financially burdensome. Right. And the payer sometimes will take the position, well, I pay you support. That's right. what pays for the activities. Right. So when they go to a conference in Pennsylvania – and they don't like, let's just say they go represent themselves. Mm-hmm. I know some attorneys tell clients, go represent yourself the first time. And if you don't like it, then you can appeal, come back, I'll take you to the hearing. Right. So what is, what is the downside of that? Will the hearing officer take, um, put a lot of credit to that first um, recommendation of the conference officer? It depends. I, when I have clients who can't afford to take me or one of my, or my associate mm-hmm. to the support conference, as long as they're W2 employees and there's nothing unusual about their pay mm-hmm. or about the other side's pay. So it's just straight W2. There's no overtime. There's no bonuses. There's no perks that need to be added back in. I say go by yourself because it's just a calculation at that point. Mm -hmm. And I will typically run some preliminary calculations for people to give them a ballpark idea if Mm -hmm. I know what the other person is making. 
to say that if, if they tell you this number, anywhere between this range and this range, it might behoove you to settle it there. If you want to wait, get the guideline calculation, get their recommendation, and then I'll look over it. And then we can always resolve it before the hearing date. So, but okay. if, if somebody, and I've, I've even told clients, call me from the conference and I'll, I'll tell you if I think it's a reasonable number. If, if people really can't afford me to go, I'll, I'll offer myself to say, I'm in the office at that time, or if I'm not, I have my associate available. And we'll talk. I mean, I try to work with people because I, I understand. I mean, it, it gets financially burdensome to bring an attorney to every single step. But if somebody has an unusual situation where they're self-employed, for example, or they get bonuses or they work overtime or they get different perks like a car paid for, cell phone, et cetera, you want to have an attorney there because it really makes a difference to make sure you're getting every income piece mm-hmm. captured and put into that calculation. And not only that... I- I'm more concerned about the extracurricular activities. Um, we have someone that has to pay $4,000 just for a band or soccer. Yeah. She can't afford that. It's most of her support payment. It's not included on her order. Right. So if she would have had, well, she did have an attorney go with her. So I would be afraid to send someone by themselves just to fight for those certain items. Unless, of course, right. it's just, like you said, W-2 if it's just, or right. calculating an amount and their kids aren't heavily involved in things. Right. Go ahead and go. If it's a pretty straightforward case, I tell people, it's okay to go by yourself. Again, the conference officer will issue a recommendation, and it's, it, it's well, different in counties. Will conversation about um, extracurricular no. activities if no. the attorney is not there? No. Uh, no, the conference officer does not want to get involved in that. Okay. And each county does it differently. I mainly practice now in Bucks and Montgomery. I used to practice in Philly a little bit, but I quit going. <laughs> it was, it's just too much. Yeah. And, you know, to charge the clients for that drive and that wait time is just, it's it's burdensome. So I, I tell people now, get an attorney that's close or to Philly or in Philly to handle that. But in Montgomery County, it really is important to bring somebody with you to that first conference because then it goes to a master's hearing after that. And then it goes to a court of common pleas judge. So there's an extra level in Montgomery County to the support conferences that we don't have in Bucks. Okay. So it, it is there is a big difference. And they, they give you a really short window in Montgomery County that you need to comply with certain provisions or you're really going to mess your case up. So in Montgomery County, I especially advise people to bring uh, me or and my associate to the conference. The very first one. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, if you ever go to the courthouse, it's intimidating. So if you're going by yourself, even though you're strong, independent, let's say female, and I'm not being sexist, but same thing, if you're being bullied by your spouse or you're in a divorce situation where you can't stand being around your spouse to have to go into a conference, sitting next to your spouse who may or may not have an attorney and you go by yourself, you tend to just agree. Well, that's, again, it's, it's very case specific. I mean, if I have a client who I know the other side is unrepresented, if they're bringing an attorney, I say, absolutely bring me. Mm-hmm. If I know that there's somebody that, that feels intimidated or bullied by the spouse, I definitely will go. So it, it's, it it's happens, really but I look at the facts of each case. Yeah. I don't just say, oh, you're a W-2 employee in Starlight, go ahead and go by yourself. I certainly look at the facts of each case. And when somebody goes by themselves, I definitely will prepare them ahead of time and say, this is what to expect. This is what to bring. Don't do this. Do that. Get Make sure you get copies of any documents that they bring. Mm-hmm. Because then when we ask for it after the fact, some of the conference officers will not give it to us, which I, I don't understand that. Wow. But it happens. Well, they're going to be faced with imputed income as well if they don't have a W-2 that 
If, they if should have a W-2. And if they don't, if they're a W-2 employee, then typically the conference, the domestic relations office will send out a wage subpoena to the employer. So even if somebody doesn't bring their income information, if they're W-2 and they've been there for the last year, then, then the conference officer will usually get that information. I, I was referring to um, a person who's never worked. Oh, yeah. I mean, they can they can be assessed in earning capacity is what we call that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I recently had a situation where the other attorney wanted to to assess. She was arguing to assess my client in earning capacity of fifty thousand dollars because she just recently got her master's degree in counseling. The woman's in her mid 50s and has never worked before other than part time. Mm -hmm. And she now she recently moved. She's living with her son who's 18. But because he's on probation, he needs to live with a, a family member. So she had to move to live with him or he wouldn't be able to go to college where he was accepted because of his criminal record. So it, it was a, an unusual situation. And I said, there's absolutely no way that we would agree to a 50,000 earning capacity. She's never earned that her entire mm -hmm. career. And so we ultimately agreed to a $30,000 earning capacity. So something that is more reasonable that, that she could do. And then hopefully if she gets up and running in the next few months to get that job, then she could make up to $30,000 a year gross without it affecting the, the calculation that we've already agreed to. Which is another example of you're listening to this. If you think you're saving money not, by not bringing an attorney with you, you may ultimately be losing a lot of money over your support payment Right. calculation. So think before you go on whether or not you should bring somebody with you. Right. Yeah. And it's the same for any agreement. I mean, I always tell clients, you don't sign anything until you review it with an attorney, because it's, it's almost impossible to undo an agreement once it's been signed. Support, right. fortunately, is always modifiable. So, I mean, that, that can be easily fixed if there's a change, but Otherwise, there, there's really no no fixing things when somebody signs off on it. But support can be is always modifiable. Okay. So that's the good and news. to back that up, we also agree that you know being a certified divorce financial analyst, I do believe that you should have clarity even when you go through your attorney what your financial outcome is before you sign that. You should speak to a CDFA and make sure you're clear right. on what this actually means because once you sign your equitable distribution, you don't go back. Right. Right. And that's why I think it is helpful. And, you know, I have sent you ladies some cases before, and I think it's helpful for people to understand what do you need to live on? What what kind of a budget do you have? How long is your alimony going to last? Mm -hmm. And and what what will you do when it runs out? So I, I think it's it's a very good idea to have people coming to mm -hmm. to a divorce planner to find out what do I need to live on? Is this going to be enough? Absolutely. And what does their current lifestyle look like on paper now? And what will it look like potentially afterwards? Because right. that really provides a lot of clarity when you're making decisions. Well, and in 10 years from now, so not just in yeah. the immediate future, but I tell people we need to look forward to 10 years from now, Absolutely. to retirement, to, yeah. to make sure that, that we're capturing enough for you and that you're going to be able to live without you know being mm -hmm. house poor, for example. So. Right. Another common area that seems to be confusing for a lot of people is when you are earning, you have the earning capacity over your spouse and you're not receiving child support. So you go and you file because you want um, child support. Well, they're not realizing that now they have to maybe pay their spouse um, alimony. Right. And there's um, 
they get a credit for it? Or how do you actually figure that? What comes first? Well, and this, uh, I tell clients all the time, please do not go and file things on your own because you may be opening a can of worms. That's exactly what they usually do. I I have a former client from years ago. I handled his custody, his support. Um, He recently came and filed his own um, spousal or his child support to modify it because he has two new children with a new relationship did it on his own, went to the conference on his own, and then called me (laughs) afterward. And he did open a big can of worms. And Mm -hmm. so we're trying to fix it now um, and negotiate with the the mother of the child from the first relationship directly. But you always want to talk to an attorney and run some different scenarios. So even if we're not 100% certain what the other person's income is, we can ballpark things and say, don't do this. This might be a really bad idea. But that, that's where a good attorney comes into play because you want to be able to tell people, don't do this. So if somebody um, is the primary custodian and they have more than 50% of the custodial time with the children, then they shouldn't be paying any support to the other parent as long as it, those qualifications are met. But if there's an alimony piece to it, so they, they may not owe child support because they have the children primarily and the guidelines don't call for it, but if they owe alimony to the other spouse, then it is going to be an offset. And under the new guidelines, what they're doing now is under the old guidelines, they would run the the child support number first and then run the alimony. Now what they're doing is for the APL, they're calculating the APL first, adding the APL income to the the recipient spouse, Mm -hmm. so the dependent spouse, and deducting it from the payor spouse, which is what they do in most other states. Okay. So Pennsylvania is coming into line more with what other states do, especially those surrounding us. So before it used to be that they would just calculate it and not add that additional income into the, the payors or into the payees and they would deduct it from the payors. So now it's really affecting the bottom line number with child support because the, the child support number is getting reduced because adding that APL number into the, I'll say mom, into the recipient mm-hmm. spouse's mm-hmm. income makes them responsible for a higher percentage mm-hmm. then of the total income, or excuse me, of the total support number for the mm-hmm. children. So instead of only having to pay 40% of the child support number, they're now responsible for 50%. So they don't get as much in child support. So the new guidelines really have not been very friendly to the recipients. Unfortunately, now that we're seeing them in, in action, they really have not been very friendly to the recipient's spouse or the recipient's so if, parent. If you and I are married and I owe you a thousand dollars a month for alimony, and you owe me five hundred dollars a month for child support, would I really just be giving you five hundred dollars yes. a month, or do you still have to go through? The- no, that if it, as long as it's going through the domestic relations office, they just do an offset. Okay. So, yeah, so then you would just be paying 500 So mm-hmm. it's not going across the aisle. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. I have one more question. Bonuses. Mm-hmm. Are, are they calculated at the conference level? They are. Okay. They are. And not ED. Because I know we well, use that sometimes. It, it's, it's a different scenario. So sometimes bonuses are typically captured with income. I sometimes depend, again, this is when it comes important to be able to run calculations. So you want to be able to look at it and say, all right, do we want to have this included as income? If it's a spousal support APL or alimony case only. So if there's no children, you might want to say, let's capture this bonus as an asset and deal with it in equitable distribution 
because there the spouse will get at least 50% of it if not more. So if, if you're getting 55% of the marital estate, you would get 55% of that bonus, the net bonus, obviously. But if you're going through, if you're including it as income, then you're getting a lesser percentage of it. So that that's where you have to be cautious. But if you have children, then the additional money can be captured via child support. So, so you need to get an attorney who understands this and can run some different scenarios to figure mm-hmm. out what the best way is to address this. Okay. Mm-hmm. And does that travel along the alimony trajectory or the child support trajectory, meaning the, how long they would share their bonus? The bonus. So any bonus. So the bonus that was received during the marriage. So let's say, for example, most people get paid their bonus the, the year after. So if, if you mm-hmm. earned your bonus in 2018, so if it's for 2018 performance and you don't get it until March of 19, for example, mm-hmm. and now, so they divorce, they separate, excuse me, in January of 2019, that bonus is considered marital. So it can be included as income or as, as an asset. So that's why you need to calculate and see which, which way it should be considered. If it's, if you want to then, so that one piece, that one bonus can then be captured in, in ED. And then if there's other bonuses that come in the future, it's not going to be considered marital, so it can't be an asset. So you then want to make sure that that's captured as income. So when somebody gets a bonus, yearly you're going back to recalculate. Or you simply say, all right, we know that the, these, the base pay is always going to be $100,000. The bonus varies. So the bonus has been 50000 The bonus has been 100000 So there's no consistency. There's no ballpark area to the bonus. Mm-hmm. So what we do is say, all right, well, yearly we'll calculate the alimony piece or the APL on what the base salary is and then capture a percentage of the net bonus when it's received. But you've got to be careful, again, having practiced so long, I, I see all the different ways that things can go wrong. And so you, you know what to look for. Mm -hmm. So then you say, all right, well, we make sure we take the, the effective tax rate. Mm -hmm. So when somebody's getting a bonus of 50,000, they're getting taxed at the highest possible rate, but that's not their effective tax rate. So their effective tax rate is what ultimately they pay at the end of the year when they're filing their income tax return. So typically we'll say we need the CPA who does the taxes to give us what the effective tax rate is. So it might only be 28% instead of closer to 40% mm-hmm. so that they can't say, well, I'm giving you the percentage of the net bonus that I got. And you have to be careful that the net bonus, you have to make sure that retirement isn't deducted from that either. Right. Because then that gets added back in. If it's not mandatory retirement, so if somebody's not a police officer or working in certain jobs where their mm-hmm. retirement is mandatory, like a county employee, for mm-hmm. example, that, that retirement gets added back in. So again, you have to get a copy of the paycheck stub. You've got to carefully look at it to see what was deducted and to make sure there were no other deductions for things that should be includable. So to summarize that, if you're listening, for any earnings prior to your divorce that were not paid yet, so any bonus that was declared in the prior year that was, to, earned, yeah. that was earned could be, should be probably, used an equitable distribution. I would only do that though if there's no children. I mean if there's if there are children, you might want to capture that with child support and the, the APL because okay. you might end up getting more out of it that okay. way. And then future bonuses would be part of the, the alimony income. income mm-hmm. And you want to make sure it's on the tax effective yield, not yes. the highest tax bracket. Right. That would probably be used. 
Right. Because then they're going to most likely get a refund at the end of the year. So that's why you need the CPA to say, what is the effective tax rate that this person is paying? And then you make sure you you get it from that calculation. And again, make sure you're looking at, you want a copy. I always include as part of my order that we have to get a copy of that paycheck stub so that we can see it rather than the person saying, well, I got $20,000. Here's your percentage of it. Mm-hmm. So, so you, you want to make sure that you get every it. year on a yearly yes. basis. Mm-hmm. So we, we put a provision in that says normally that within 10 days of the receipt of the bonus, they have to provide a copy of the, the paycheck indicating what the breakdown was. And so when you say that, so here you're thinking, oh my gosh, I have to talk to my husband every year. I'm divorced now. I don't want to ever talk to him again. Who, and a year goes by and they don't give it to you. Now what do you do? Or two years goes by. What if you wait five years and you never got the validation? That that becomes complicated. I mean, if you if it's a year later and the person hasn't provided it, it's part of an order. So if they're not compliant, they're in contempt of an order. So if it's part of the support order, you can normally go back as long as it's not alimony yet. If it's part of the support order, you can go back to the court and file a contempt petition. If it's an APL order, it's easier for domestic relations to just handle the filing of that and the enforcement of it. If it's now an alimony order, you have to go now to divorce court instead of to the the support division. But if you wait four or five years, (laughs) the court sort of looks at you like, really, you've been sitting on your laurels for this long and now you want us to sort of penalize this person? And they, they should go back. But it turns into why why didn't you come forward sooner? So the moral of the story is as soon as there's a problem, I would suggest if you don't want to talk to your ex, put something in writing, put an email together, put a certified letter together. This was part of the order. You, you didn't give it to me. I need this. I'm giving you 10 more days. If you don't give it to me within those 10 days, I need it by X date or I'm going to file a motion for contempt and you're going to leave me with no choice. And then if you get an attorney, they can include accounts seeking attorney's fees because somebody is in contempt. Do they get them? Sometimes it it depends. And this is why, you know, it depends on the judge. And if it's a judge that has not been in private practice before, if it's a judge that, you know, has, has only done a certain area of law, like being a prosecutor, they sometimes don't understand the, the ramifications to somebody having to pay their attorney for every everything that comes up when somebody's in contempt. So most of our judges have been Bucks County, um, have been giving them lately. If it's, a, if it's a situation where somebody is truly in contempt and it's an egregious situation, but if somebody just forgot or they're a few days late, the judges like to try to see people work that out. Right. Well, that's a great segue into our final little section of this podcast. So there's something fairly incredible happening in Bucks County, Pennsylvania right now. (laughs) So let's talk about that. Okay. So right now we have uh, two brand new created seats. They were created by legislation in November of 2017, actually. Judge seats. Judge seats. Yes. So two brand new judge seats. And we have one of our current sitting judges is retiring uh, at the end of this year. So there are now three judicial vacancies in Bucks County, and we will have an election this year for three new judges. And I am running for one of them. That's How exciting. Yeah, thank you. So let, let's talk about number one, because we're all talking about family law and divorce. A, why is it so important that an experienced family law attorney be on the bench, not only in Pennsylvania, but nationwide. And when people are looking at their judges or electing judges, what are some things that they need to have in mind? What are the 
credentials of sort that makes for a very good judge on the bench. And can I first say for someone who, me being someone that does not follow politics, <laughs> I was actually shocked to learn that our judges in the family court system have never, some of them have never even practiced family law. Right. So be aware of that if you're out there listening. To me, that's surprising. Right. And I think it's it's really about educating yourself because I think most people say, well, I, I don't, I'm not in the court system. I, I don't really need to know about this. And it, it becomes a situation where you really need to educate yourself to, to become an informed voter. Because if you are in the system, you you know the importance of having a judge who has experience in that court. And, you know, for the past 20 years in Bucks County, at least, all of our new judges have first been assigned to family court. And for that same time frame, we have not had a judge with any significant family law experience. Some have had some experience, but nothing significant. And the, the difference is that we then have people coming into court and they, they sometimes walk out not understanding what's happening because the attorney has said this might be the way this goes and it's, it's really important to have a judge who understands that area of law so that informed decisions are getting made. You can make prompt decisions. You can be empathetic with people because you have represented them. You, you live this with people on a daily basis, but you can still be firm. So you, you understand that, that cases need to be decided. You need to make a decision. And that, that can happen more readily when you have the extensive background in that area of law. And you're consistent. Yeah. Right. Well, it seems from my perspective or my observation that one side or the other essentially holds the money back and is able to pay for more attorney representation than the other. So I would think that it's very important for a judge to be able to see that and make um, balance that out a little bit just from their observation as well from well, the bench. Let me back that up with a question where they have... Um, you can sometimes ask for attorney fees or one party will be charged attorney fees if they misuse the court's time. It's not necessarily a misuse of the court's time. I think it's it's more the, of the contemptuous situation where somebody isn't doing what they've already been ordered to do. And that that is typically when you, you can ask for sanctions, such as attorney's fees. But sometimes people can't afford the attorney in the first place. Right. And we, we did our Box County Bar Association screening last week. And one of the questions that they asked was, you know, how do you ensure that there is equal justice for, for all right. that come into the court? And I said, ultimately, because other people were answering the question, and I, I think ultimately it comes down to the judge. You need to have a judge who has experience in that area of law and the court in which they're sitting. So that if somebody does come in unrepresented because they can't afford an attorney or for whatever reason, you have a judge who understands that area of the law and can then start asking questions and can then start sort of dissecting what's happening and make a good decision. So that if somebody does come in without representation, not that the judge would represent that person, but you, you get to the bottom of the case, you get to the bottom of the facts and, and you can pinpoint the issues and figure out what's happening and make the best decision. Well, you can also figure out the strategy of the other side that does have the representation and how they're taking advantage of the person who doesn't. Right. Yeah, you would be able to vet that out. I'm Speaking of the screening, I noticed that mediation, that word is being used more and more. And I know a lot of other states already incorporate mediation. And it's our experience that while mediation can be somewhat of a useful tool, it doesn't address the less informed spouse. Right. So a mediator can't give advice. And so while it seems like 
uh, an effective tool. Maybe on some levels it is, but I think it doesn't address the dysfunction of the family law system as a whole. And I, I think, and again, some some of our other um, candidates are they have a business background and they they represent corporations and businesses, and that's great. But yes, that's and good I mediation. Think, right, I think that is a good ground for mediation because you're dealing with people who aren't intimately involved. They're not as emotionally charged in family court. People can't remove themselves from the situation. This is their life. These are their children. These are their assets. This is how they're going to continue to live their life on, on what they're given. So I think it becomes more complicated in the realm of family law to do mediation because a lot of times you see people that aren't on equal footing. You, you have mm-hmm. years of a relationship that may have been codependent, maybe dysfunctional, and just people cannot, you can't negotiate then in mediation if you're not on equal footing. And I think in the realm of business, people normally are more on equal footing, not always on the mm-hmm. same type of footing, but I think they have access to equal right, footing. Right. And I think mm-hmm. that it, it makes more sense in that area. I mean, but sometimes in family law, I think it becomes a little more complicated because you do have those underlying factors mm-hmm. that, that come into play. And as a mediator, you can't say, ma'am, you really should leave here and go and get an attorney, mm-hmm. or you should be asking for more than 50%. You're not allowed to do that as a mediator. And And that's why we started My Divorce Solution to provide some level of an equal footing from a financial perspective so that when clients are financially informed, they have a better wherewithal to make really good informed decisions. So that's a huge part of what we do here to support the family law system and to support a client then going to an attorney to get it you know, get their divorce more formalized. Right. And sometimes I've found it helpful when, when you ladies get involved in a case to, to just sort of get the information on what assets are out there, because sometimes people have no idea what, what, what is even there. So how are you supposed to go to mediation on equal footing if you're not even aware of what all the assets are? You just had that happen last week. And you know, you know, they weren't identified. Right. And to be honest, a lot of times both parties will bring up everything that they have. There are times where both spouses want to be transparent, but they get into the system of what to share, what not to share. So I do think, although it might not be mediation, like you said, what Mm -hmm. we created here, when we can have both couples come in here and share the information, even if they can't come to an agreement, at least they're taking that shared information to their attorneys. Right. And and they're saving thousands and thousands of dollars because that information has to come out somehow. That's true. 10% 10% of the cases, they're going to hide it and they're going to steal it and they're going to do whatever. We can't help them. And they're just going to litigate right. that the whole way through. Right. But most people really do want to come in and just say, here's what we have. Yeah. And you know, that's what we call a financial negotiated settlement, which mm-hmm. is very different from mediation. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But ultimately, I think that people do, and I think that you ladies are good about that, too, in saying, go and take this to an attorney. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We don't and have them look advice. at it before anything is signed. And even throughout the process. Right. If your yeah. attorney says not to share it, come back and tell us why. Right. And at that point, you have to go to your attorney and let them figure it out. Right. But definitely, before you sign anything, you should have it reviewed, because we can't give you legal advice. Right. And then come back with an opinion letter. Let your attorney give you an opinion letter. Right. Bring it back here, both of you. And then if not, then let the two attorneys talk it out. It's good, though, to get that that discovery, what we call mm-hmm. discovery piece, out of the way. And right. then if we need to follow up with some additional requests to get more documents or more information, we can do that. But that, that takes up a bulk of yeah. time. 
and it can get expensive Very if somebody expensive. is not willing to turn it over. And I think when you're in a situation where it's two attorneys, people become more defensive. But I think when Absolutely. they're here, they, they feel like they're trying to be a little more cooperative and, and release that information. And then when you have the financial portrait, you get to do your job. Your right. job is not to collect financial data. What do you want to do? Your job is to look at it and what can I get for you based on your rights? Right. And that's what you need to go in there and do. But then when we can gather the information for them, and most, right. like I said, most times both parties want to. And that, that's really helpful because that is part of my job is to gather that information if, if we don't already have it. If people aren't being forthcoming with it, we do have to get it. Right. Well, then you do that. But that's right. not really your talent. Your talent is to really stand up for that person. Right. I don't want to have them to chase down You don't want to chase documents down and analyze them. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you for running for judge. Yes, you very for excited. Yeah. I'm very excited because we're very yeah. passionate on having attorneys who have experience. Because I think, you know, again, mine's for the end user, the person that's going through this process. It's so difficult. And if you feel like you don't have someone up there who's in the middle of the two parties that can really not only empathize, but get to the bottom of it without right. wasting everyone's time and emotion and protect, feel like you're protected. Right. I think if you don't have that experience, I don't know how you do it. Well, I, th I think that it would, I think that my background would add a great compliment to the current makeup of our, our bench. And we do have some great judges up there, but, mm -hmm. but we need somebody with some significant family court experience. And I have that, plus I have significant criminal court experience. Mm -hmm. So I, th I think it would be a really good compliment. And you're a so, single mom. I am. So you mom. understand. <laughs> yeah. Losing yeah. a um, female judge, so we need to keep that female representation going. So for our listeners, if they want to know more about you, um, your, um, when they're deciding about who they're going to vote for for judge, what is your website for that? My website is carissalillerforjudge.com. It's C-H-A-R-I-S-S-A-L-I-L-L-E-R for judge.com. And I also have a Facebook page, Carissa Liller um, for judge on Facebook. Okay. Excellent. Okay. Very excited. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for being with us. And thank you all. And if you have questions for us, you can find um, information on how to contact us at www.mydivorcesolution.com. Thank you.